Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the middle of December. Back with you once again after an unplanned week away last week. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad that we're all back together once again, that uh, things have been resolved after uh, some some slight uh, furniture-related catastrophes on our end of things, uh, that uh, those have been resolved. Uh, temporary fixes have been put in place, and uh, we're all back together once again here in the, in the middle of December. Yes, the middle of December, and related to that, this week my nickname is Dent. Well, I'm Dennis. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> so as as always, I'm the second voice on this program, and this week my nickname is well, I'm Dennis. The <laughs> sorry. Dennis. This week I'm Dennis, the man who is constantly amazed by the time distortion that always happens around every normal Christmas season. Because, yeah, we have a normal Christmas season again, Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, this year. Surprise. Surprise, yeah. (laughs) So, it's, uh, yeah, uh, without getting into that too far, uh, I'm just going to say, yeah, so every normal Christmas season, it seems like there's a weird phenomenon that seems to happen where it just feels like, you know, oh, Christmas is a couple months away, ah, it's several weeks away, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you going around your business, doing whatever. You might be prepared for Christmas. I'm not even saying this is an unprepared for Christmas thing. It's just sort of this weird thing that seems to happen where it feels like, you know, days should be going by day by day, but then all of a sudden, without realizing it, you're two weeks away from Christmas. And it's just like, it, when I last thought about this, I was two months away from Christmas. Why am I all of it? Like, it was like, just, it was like November 1st, like, just like last week. What's happening? Now we're like <laughs> December 19th. What the hell? It's like a weird feeling of just kind of like, if you're walking at a normal pace and then without realizing it, you just end up walking on one of those, you know, a horizontal people mover type moving sidewalks, moving sidewalks that they have in some airports and stuff. And then, you're just like, wait, how did I end up all the way over here? I was just walking at a normal pace. <laughs> and like, if people just start whizzing right by you as you're walking, you're like, wow, I'm making, I'm going at a brisk pace. And then you're like, oh, geez, I'm standing in front of the Chili's right now. How did I get here? <laughs> yeah, I was way back in Terminal 15. Now I'm on Terminal 36. How did I, what? <laughs> Yep, pretty much happens, and, and that is why I was stressing that uh, the arcade is coming to you with this episode in the middle of December, because at the time this episode, this particular episode is being released, we are just two weeks away from Christmas. Does it feel like, yeah, slow, slow pace, like, okay, or even just modest pace, and all of a sudden just like, clang, giant <laughs> gong was struck or something, it's like, oh yeah, no, Christmas is right around the corner. Yeah. Like, how did this happen? Yeah, what the hell, what's going on? And then possibly a mad scramble ensues to get whatever ready, and you realize, oh no, oh, people are coming over, oh god, oh. Oh, we have to do a panic cleanup, we have to do a finished panic setup, oh, do we have all the, the, the Christmas decorations up, oh no, I forgot to put up the thing, oh no, the lights, oh, one of the lights isn't working, oh no, what am I going to do with the light? I have to get this, okay, uh, uh, okay, how did this panic happen? We had like six weeks left, why are we down to like two days, what happened? Exactly. <laughs> And it's a mad scramble, uh, or there's some level of, like, rush and hurriedness about the season. Happens every year, and uh, to any of our younger listeners out there, uh, just a, a warning, take it from us, it gets worse as you go along in time. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine what it must be like for, you know, our parents, or our grandparents, if they're, you know, still with us, like, you know, like, if, <laughs> just talk to them about the, the weird 
time compression that seems to happen in general with just getting older, but in particular, the Christmas season seems like it's like amplified really bad. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's just a byproduct of maybe not being, say, in school or in the confines or the protective bubble of, of daily school, where um, time, also a byproduct of being young at that time and your concept of time is just skewed. You don't yeah. know. Uh, a 40-minute math class can seemingly drag on forever, and then you get older and realize, oh, 40 minutes is literally the blink of an eye. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can handle it. Oh, days go by in the blink of an eye, and you can't really call Recall what the hell happened. Yeah. You can't. I'll say, well, I guess I went to work. I didn't get fired, so... Yeah, well, I'm still at this job somehow, so <laughs> here we are. So uh, hopefully you out there, uh, if you're listening to us, uh, you understand from uh, the place from which we are coming, and uh, you have uh, things well in hand, or if not, good luck. Yeah, best of luck, friend. <laughs> We're not going to help you, but... Uh, we won't work against you, so there's that. Yeah, time is your enemy in this case. Yes, time is your enemy, not us. Yeah, not us. We <laughs> didn't do anything about this. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't do anything like that to you. I mean, time does make fools of us all, and it's the thing that just happens. It does. So we're all in the same boat, if you will, but, uh, you know, socially distance in the boat as well. Yeah, reasonably distance. But uh, all that funny talk aside, uh, that is a nice uh, nice way to war- warm up, if you will, and get into the ludicrous lead-offs, the two news items we have come across that are just a slight bit more special than every other story we've come across. That, that extra special kind of special. They got that extra sauce. You know, the burger store or burger joint employee was a bit more generous and gave you some extra special sauce, and that's what <laughs> these stories have. So we have two of them, both of them video game related, which... Feels like a rarity in this day and age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we've come across two of them, and the first one um, is nostalgic while also not being nostalgic. Wistful for a bygone era, but for an era that... For an era that not a lot of people really were around for or cared about, it seems. Yeah, a, a, a wistful for an era that was really just a footnote. Yeah. So our first ludicrous leadoff has to deal with the fact that uh, there is a brand new video game. It's a 2D platformer that is being released, and the platform it's being released on is the Wii U. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's not an official release, just to kind of put that out there, but it's still, um, it's a new game being put out by the modder community, or the just broad community of people in general who care about the Wii U still, uh, the specifically by an indie outfit called Ultra Dolphin Revolution, and the game is going to be called Captain U. Letter U. No, not the word U or anything like that, but Captain followed by the letter U. Capitalized. Yes. As in we U, but Captain U. And uh, I'm just going to say that uh, this indie outfit, diehard Nintendo fans with the fact that they've called themselves Ultra Dolphin Revolution which was the code name, I believe, for the or the respective code names of the N64, the GameCube, and the Nintendo Wii. Yeah. So and actually, sorry, just seeing Ultra again on my paper here reminds me the Nintendo 64 when it was going to be released was initially going to be called the Ultra 64. Yeah. Because I distinctly recall being in arcades back around that time and in the mid-90s and playing the Cruisin' USA arcade cabinets and the spinny logo on it was for the Nintendo Ultra 64. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, if you are someone that has a Wii U, uh, I guess the Wii U eShop is still up and running, so. Which is surprising. That is surprising, considering it is a nine-year-old console, and you would have thought that Nintendo would have put all of their efforts now towards the Switch, like they have for the last five plus years at least, but, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a press release here from, uh, well, uh, from Ultra Dolphin Revolution, and they say, and I quote, Welcome to this new yet familiar universe. Uh, you are known as Captain Yu, and you are here to locate the missing princess. Equipped with this universe's legendary weapon, the Power Pad, <laughs> you will utilize your unique powers to find the princess and save the universe. And, uh, yeah, this is all found in the description on the, the eShop page for this Captain Yu, which, again, you can actually purchase... On the Wii U eShop, uh, for $299 US dollars or $299 euros. Uh, it's a nine level game where there's nine levels. You can use the Wii U gamepad to create or move platforms and delete enemies. Um, seems kind of interesting. Seems like a bit of a waste to make it for the Wii U. Yeah, usually if you're releasing a product, be it a game, be it a physical product, or whatever the case might be, you want to release it so you're you're going to have access and gain interest from the widest possible audience. Yeah. This is very much narrow casting. This is very much looking to target a niche audience, but that niche audience, haven't they moved on? Yeah, I don't know. Like I, I maybe they have better numbers than we do, but I thought the reason why Nintendo pivoted so quickly onto the Switch was because no one was buying the Wii U. Yeah, the Wii U was a flop, uh, I think, uh, in the grand sense of everything. Uh, critically, commercially, uh, the Wii U Ethically, just... Ethically, morally. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> scientifically. <You know. laughs> uh, it just did not work in any way, shape, or form. But the, you can see uh, the DNA from the Wii U in the Switch now. Yeah, like there's no denying that, you know, the Wii U definitely set us up for what the Switch is now, but <laughs> it's not around anymore. Like, I mean, sure, physically, the units that were sold exist in people's houses. Are they hooked up? Sure, maybe. People might, you know, there might be, you know, some blast holdouts playing, you know, Breath of the Wild on the Wii U because it, it was one of the last games released for the Wii U, mm -hmm. as well as one of the first games released for the Switch. Maybe they're, it's just their way of playing that game and they don't really care about any new Nintendo games and that's, that's perfectly fine as well. But the Switch is, you know, inching up to be the best selling Nintendo console of all time at this point. The Wii U is definitely nowhere near that level. I think it's at the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> I, th I think it is the worst selling of Nintendo's home consoles. Yeah. So, so not to, you know, throw any shade here for no reason towards, uh, you know, Ultra Dolphin Revolution, but if they want more people to play their game, like, I, I don't know, it, is their concept so tied in with the Wii U that it wouldn't make sense for it to be on the Switch? I don't know, I, because in order to have sales, people are needing to buy this from the eShop on the Wii U. So, sure, you can appeal to Wii U fans, but then you need them and want them to take the next step action of have their systems hooked up, go online, have credit in their account, and purchase it from the Wii U eShop with said credit. There's a lot of steps involved there that you have to hope are in place. 
you, I don't know how much confidence you could have in this current day and age, in this current environment, that all those steps are going to happen in order to make a sale. Because that's why Ultra Dolphin Revolution is releasing this game. They want to make sales. They want well, to make you, some form of money. Well, you would have thought so because, I mean, yeah, like there is effort to get onto the eShop. Yes. And there was a cost associated with developing this game. It might only be a 2D platformer, only nine levels, but even so, there was some form of of time and effort put into it, even if it was just from a small development team of one, two, maybe three people, at most maybe a handful, just ballparking some numbers here. I don't know for sure. Ultra Dolphin Revolution is not really a development studio we've heard too much about. No, and I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, like, there's... Every indie studio starts out that way, mm-hmm. you know. Granted, not every indie studio turns into a Mo Yang or a uh, Concerned Ape or anyone like that who have like, or a Toby Fox or anything like yeah. that who end up just with like a massive thing on their hands. But still, you know, you you want to try to cast the widest net you can, and seems a little bit odd that they haven't. Or maybe they're doing that. I mean, I, I don't really know. Maybe this game is actually available on the Switch as well. I mean, maybe a Switch release comes after, but they wanted the initial cachet to be, oh, it's on the Wii, and that's what will get uh, people talking. It's worked yeah, to get us talking, and that was the initial salvo, and then you can always release on the eShop later, uh, or, or a Switch uh, platform later, but... Take it however you so will. There's a brand new game being released this month for the Wii U. Again, two ninety nine US, two ninety nine euros. Uh, it's called Captain U on the Wii U by Ultra Dolphin Revolution, who are going hard and thick with the uh, Nintendo ness, where you have to uh, find and rescue a princess using the legendary Power Pad. Yeah, just just throwing it out there. Thick and heavy with the Nintendo. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're laying it on. There's, it's not even like really. It's not subtle. It's not subtle in any sort of way. It's not subtle or clever. So there's that. They, they're trying to beat you over the head with the Nintendo-ness of it all. And hopefully it works and they get some sales out of it. They've certainly at least succeeded in getting us talking about it. And now for you listening, know about it as well. But uh, moving on to our second ludicrous leadoff, uh, playing that game, Captain U, may not require a lot of brain power. It might be a more straightforward 2D platforming adventure, but there certainly are games uh, we've played in our existence that uh, can tax you mentally. You know, be it a puzzle game, uh, be it uh, some sort of long-winded RPG, whatever the case might be, but something that uh, just requires a lot of focus, a lot of time, a lot of thinking through the steps of what it is you're doing. So just requires a lot of brain power to get through. But games don't actually, you know, aren't actually powered by your thoughts. No, not usually. I mean, that would be, well, I'd say that that would be, you know, really something out of a uh, science fiction thing now, but we are making strides towards, you know, living our science fiction truth to make (laughs) science fiction into reality these days. And uh, really in the last three to five years, we've been seeing a lot of crazy advances with things like AI and, brain-human interfaces and, like, ocular scans and, you know, various things, not even getting into, like, you know, this, the dystopian nature of things like the blockchain and stuff, which we'll talk a, a little bit about. about oh, of course you know, we will. A little later on in this program, but uh, just, yeah. Anything that seemed like it would have been an insane science fiction thing is starting to come true, and that really has been the last five years. 
uh, to the point now where, yeah, like I said, brain, even brain human interfaces are now a thing. They're not a widespread thing. No, but no. they're a thing. They are technology that exists and they're only going to get more widespread as uh, we go forward, uh, and as advances are made and perhaps price points of certain, uh, items in that field of technology come down and perhaps as they're further commercialized as well. Uh, but one modder out there in the world has been able to take one of those brain human or brain computer interfaces and apply them and uh, allow himself at least to uh, make it work with Skyrim VR. Yeah. And uh, do some quote unquote real virtual magic. Yeah. So there is an actual mod available called, uh, like it's available, I think it's on the Nexus Mods website on the Skyrim, like for the Skyrim Special Edition. But yeah, he's created this thing that he's calling a real virtual magic mod for Skyrim VR. So it does use this brain-computer interface thing that we were talking about that measures your concentration. Uh, and the more you focus, the higher ma- your magicka bar becomes. You fill it up and you'll do double damage, let it drop and you'll do less. So it means, long story short, TLDR, focus more. Better spell, focus less, worse magic. So, yeah, not sure how practical this actually is at this point, but it's been done and they've actually worked it out. Not sure how well it works. There's probably some steep configuration that has Mm -hmm. to happen with this, but, and also some very specialized hardware, like not, like just having a PlayStation VR or whatever, like VR unit is not going to be enough for this. No. But, you know, the the proof of concept's there. And so in order to properly use this mod as it's been designed by this one particular user, you need access to a Muse meditation device and a dongle. Uh, and that's a device used to measure brain activity, heart rate, breathing, and body movements during meditation. Uh, so this mod has been created by uh, an individual calling themselves Kangar, who alleged to be a neuroscientist working at the... Uh, a technical university in Berlin. I will not attempt to pronounce the actual German name of it because I will butcher it and get an entire country mad at me. I wish not to do that. Yes. Good call. <laughs> uh, so this one user, the person who made this mod, apparently has a combined uh, interest in the human brain, brain along with Skyrim VR. So according to the modder who made this, Kangar, uh, they are keen on players testing the mod so data can be collected and the mod can be expanded on in the future as it's still currently in just the alpha state. So it's right up there with Star Citizen. Yeah. Though he's put out more stuff than arguably, well, I'm not going to say more stuff. I mean, he's put some stuff out without, you know, getting a whole bunch of people's hopes out up first. That's to true. His, to his credit, like he hasn't like collected tens of millions of dollars off of crowdfunding people. Uh, without releasing a single game or releasing anything yet. So there's okay. even, like, there's a page on the Nexus Mods site about this thing already. So he's got something out there. He does. Absolutely does. And so as soon as this mod enters, say, the beta state, further along than Star Citizen. <laughs> yes. Just going to throw that out there. That is my going to be my point of reference for anything. Like, oh, you're doing this? Well, how far along are you? Oh, you're, you know, such and such compared to Star Citizen. Yeah. Does that make me a jerk? I don't care. I think it's funny. Yes. 
So do I. Excellent. Well, that's why I did it. You are the audience. <laughs> you are the only yes. other person in this room. So. Yes, perfect. Uh, so those are the ludicrous leadoffs. If uh, you're interested in checking out the Skyrim VR, I guess, concentration mod, uh, we have a link to it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. But into onto the actual meat and potatoes news of the week and uh, throughout the course of this year, as this is our last regular program for the year of 2021, uh, it's it's coming to a close pretty quickly this year is. Uh, some of the, the terms we've heard most often through the year have been, uh, crypto, have been NFTs, blockchain, things of that nature, which we've talked about a fair bit on this program. Yeah. Because seemingly the world of tech has just lost its goddamn mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to put things very lightly, uh, things weren't looking, uh, dystopian enough and they just decided, no, you know, let, let's, let's, let's make it a little bit worse. It's like, how can we make it worse? Let's try. Yeah. Can we? Are there ways? Let's, let's put a team on it. Yeah. Let's put a team on it and then, uh, yeah. So, so forced, uh, scarcity in the digital realm is, uh, is a thing we're all going to live with. And, uh, it's not going away as evidenced by the fact that some, some major companies are now picking up on this trend and running with it. Uh, news coming down just a few days ago that Ubisoft, one of the major, uh, game producers out there, uh, development studios and publishers, they have announced something called Quartz which is their own NFT platform that's going to be used for unique items in AAA games that they say, the company does, will run on, quote, energy-efficient technology that uses a, quote, million times less energy than a Bitcoin transaction, end quote. Let's review that again. A, quote, million times less energy than a Bitcoin transaction. End quote. That's directly pulled from their press release. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure how, like, what means they use to measure this. I'm, I'm also, if I'm being honest, don't fully know the environmental impact of Bitcoin and or Ethereum transactions currently. All I do know is that apparently it's bad. That's what I keep hearing. Yeah. It's not good. That they use a lot of power, and it's basically the, well, I'm sure it's because of the people who are still relentlessly mining bitcoins in this day and age when it's not viable to mine them anymore, because you're way past that, like, peak point of it where it's, you know, <laughs> to, to solve hashes, the hashes need to be super complicated at this point, because, you know, everything scales logarithmically, which means, like, it gets twice as complicated every time. And then once you're at a certain point, you're like, oh, well, this is unfeasible. Even like first from like, which is why there was a jump from CPU to GPU and then from GPU to like dedicated mining devices, then from dedicated mining devices to like mining farms, then from mining farms to the like energy crisis that they've created in mm -hmm. places like China and things like that now. So it's like, this is the point we're at now. So for them to say one million times, I'm not entirely sure what that means or if that's even still bad. It might still be bad. It, it, that's true. It, it It's just, uh, you know, less bad, but still anything less bad is still kind of bad. Yeah. 
So it's some level of bad in the same way that uh, you may have heard uh, people talk about uh, vaping as being, well, it's less, you know, it's X percentage, uh, you know, less bad for you than smoking cigarettes or whatnot. Might be true, but you're also stating that uh, vaping is bad for you. Yeah. Is some level of bad for you. Yeah. Which, by the way, doctors also don't know the full effects, the full effects of vaping yet. Whereas they know the full effects of smoking. True. So there's decades of evidence. Yeah. There's, I would probably almost a hundred years of evidence of like cigarette smoke versus what, five, ten years of vaping, maybe? Ten at the most, I'd say. <laughs> so, so, so there's that. Like, I'm gonna focus on this quote from the press release as we're just kind of starting this, uh, news item here. A million times less energy than Bitcoin transaction. So I come across this story. I read it through it. That is, uh, the poll quote that really stands out to me. And the image that instantly formed in my brain after I read that, cause that's a re- seemingly ridiculous statement. It might be actually factually true if you break down the numbers. We don't know, we don't have access, and don't know what points of comparison they are making. But to say a million times less energy, that on its face is just a ridiculous statement because a million times anything is ridiculous. It's almost preposterous. Yeah, it's no, almost ludicrous. Yeah, they, they do say, they try to break it down. They're saying uh, they chose Tezos because of its original, well, Tezos is uh, the underlying technology behind quartz. So more and more confusing words. Yeah. But anyways, the technology that is powering all of this is called Tezos, which is a a blockchain, and it's the thing that's supposed to be using a lot of less energy. And they say that one transaction on this Tezos network uses the same amount of energy as streaming 30 seconds of video, while the previous generation of blockchain networks can consume the same energy required for one year of nonstop streaming. But they're also not saying what device they're streaming video on. Like, there's a whole lot of missing information here. Sure is. Yeah, sure there. Sure, sure is there. So the image that formed in my mind when I read that, like, one million times less energy quote was actually going back to one of the earlier episodes of the Ninja Turtles cartoon. <laughs> Uh, when, uh, I think April O'Neil comes across, uh, a building that where there was just a kerfuffle between the turtles and the foot clan and her instant statement upon seeing the, uh, destruction, the disarray that everything has been left in is to ask the question aloud of like, what, you know, it look, or to say aloud, it looks like World War 11 in here. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is on par with that. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, by the way, that's a real thing that was said. Yeah. I remember we both watched that episode, I think, because, you know, I, I came up, one of us came across some old Turtles tape or a VHS yes. tape or something, and it was just like, oh, let's watch this, it might be fun. We watched it, and then that line was said, and it was like, oh, this is not aged well, and also this is written very poorly. I mean, we died <laughs> laughing. Yeah, because that's a ridiculous line to say, but it's like, oh, it's like World War Eleven in here. What does that even mean? Are, are you, <laughs> like... World War Two was the last world war that was actually labeled as such, and we know what type of destu- destruction that was. You could have just said it was like World War Two in here. Like, it's not like each world war is like a certain percentage worse than the previous one. That's not why they're named that way. It's not like it's like an increasing statement in intensity. It's just the next one. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so, the world wars don't scale logarithmically like no, <laughs> like hashes do. No, that's not how. That's not the reason why wars are named that way. It's like 
it's like saying like, oh, there was that seven years war in this country and then there was like the revolutionary war over here. Like what, like how do you, <laughs> there, there's no comparison there. Like the destruction might've been similar in terms of property damage and lives lost and stuff like that. But it's not like one was twice as bad because it happened five years later or something like that. It's like, that's not how that math works, but I see what you're saying. It's, it's a, it's a nebulous statement that is not based in any sort of like, they're not breaking it down in terms of like kilowatt hours or something. No, they're not. They're, they're providing no context, no actual detailed information of how they've arrived at this million times less. That's the headline grabber right there that they wanted was the million times less energy. Yeah, but it's like, you're saying it's 30 seconds of video streamed on what? Uh, like a hardcore gaming rig that is using like, as much power as, I don't know, an oven being turned mm-hmm. on to like 500 degrees for an hour? Like what, what is this based on? What is this like a super efficient, like, like LED light bulb turned on for five seconds? Like, like it's not, it's not a good statement. Like use real numbers. Don't say like, no, granted, like we are just kind of reading the poll quote version. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is a place that they're talking about this and more, elaborate detail i would hope that they came to this number based on like actual kilowatt hours but i am curious what the actual number actually is and if how that actual number compares to let's say something like it like a light bulb like compared to a 100 watt light bulb how long would a 100 watt light bulb have to be on to match this you know now, are, are we talking LED bulb? Are we talking, uh, well, let's just, fluorescent, let's incandescent? Just say, let's say traditional incandescent bulb, like, or. Cause we know they're inefficient. Yeah, we know they're inefficient, but like, we know typically how much power that might use. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even just use kilowatt hours. Like, everyone has some sort of measure of understanding of what that costs even, just from a purely financial standpoint, wherever you live, you get an energy bill if you have a house, right? Mm-hmm. So you should know how many, how much you pay per kilowatt hour and how many kilowatt hours your household uses per month. Mm-hmm. We might find out actually, oh, this is as much, like still one transaction uses the same amount of power as like a typical North American household would in a day, which is terrible if that's the case, but we don't know. Because the comparison of one million times less doesn't mean anything. Absolutely not. And I think it's designed to mean nothing other than just get your attention. Uh, as they want attention put on this new NFT platform called Quartz, the NFTs themselves that Ubisoft will offer on this platform are called Digits. And these will be in-game cosmetic items that come with a unique code visibly stamped upon them. And these serial-coded cosmetic items can be kept or sold with the previous ownership history logged. Sure. Uh, So there is that. Uh, Ubisoft is describing Quartz as an experiment and one which uh, initially will not be available in the UK. It will only be available in select countries to start. Uh, Players in the US, Canada, Spain, France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Australia, and Brazil will be the first one to get dibs. On this platform, when it is launched, uh, a 
another quote here from the press release that has nothing to do with the ridiculous, you know, energy efficiency statements says, quote, each digit is a unique collectible that features its own serial number for others to see in game, also keeping track of its current and previous owners for years to come, making players an integral part of the game's history. Digits are high quality in-game collectibles with active uh, u- with active utility value. As playable cosmetic items, digits provide players the ability to personalize their experience and complete their missions with style. Each digit comes with a certificate of ownership stored on blockchain, a decentralized community-driven technology independent from Ubisoft which grants players more control than ever. With digits, items are no longer bound to a player's game inventory since they can be put on sale for other eligible players to acquire on third-party platforms outside of the Ubisoft ecosystem. End quote. So, cool? Yeah, I mean, that is a problem and a criticism I would say that a lot of digital goods have always had. Like, yeah, I'm not disagreeing that, like, it would be good to have a way to be able to buy and sell digital goods, specifically sell digital goods mm-hmm. that you, you know, have purchased previously. And like, if they're pre-owned, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like if you want to get your money back because you're no longer interested in owning the thing, traditionally you've just kind of been hooped. You know, it's yep. like, oh, well, I've, I bought this thing, but now I don't care about it anymore, but it was 10 bucks and I'll never get that 10 bucks back. And now it'll just go to waste. Whereas someone else could buy it off you and you you were at the very least recover your 10 bucks. Hopefully. Or maybe even just like make some other deal where you're like, okay, well I'll sell for eight bucks. Who cares? Fine. Mm -hmm. You, you take this thingy that, you know, my character was this backpack thing that my character was wearing. Fine. Go ahead. Take it. Yeah. I don't need it anymore. Whatever, whatever these digits are going to manifest themselves as, but yeah, it's, uh, it is a problem, but like, yeah, I'm glad that they're trying to make a solution, but still, when you're going to make a claim like one million times more energy efficient, please have some numbers to back it up. Or don't make that statement. Yeah, or don't make the statement at all, because you're it's pretty much being worthless. Unless you're able to give context when making such a ridiculous statement, don't give the statement. You can say it'll be a more energy efficient version, blah, blah, blah. Cool. And that's fine. Just keep the, keep the lunacy and the ridiculous statements out of things. So players, back to the NFTs here for a moment, players will be, uh, able to own and only able to own one in- iteration of any unique cosmetic item in any one time. Uh, in Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint, you'll also need to be a level, level five in the game and also be 18 years of age or older. So there's three digits currently, uh, available. Through the Ubisoft Quartz website, uh, they will be available on the 9th, 12th, and 15th for Breakpoint PC owners uh, from Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint. So uh, this is a thing that's already up and running, and uh, or soon to be up and running as a thing. So yeah, Ubisoft getting in on that uh, sweet, sweet NFT cash, cash? money? I think, yeah, something is exchanged. Some kind of thing is exchanged for some kind of currency. S- someone gets something out of these deals. Still not sure what. Yeah. I don't think we've understood what yet, but nevertheless. But hey, again, 
NFTs, one of the big uh, buzzwords through this year. Also, blockchain, another one of the big buzzwords of this year. Yeah, blockchain, though, you know, has been a bit of a bigger buzzword for the better part of almost the last decade, really, since Bitcoin really kind of started to take off way back in, what, 2012, 2013, I think Uh, is what it was. I don't recall hearing it around that time, but uh, it's really, I've only come to know of, you know, uh, Bitcoin over the last, say, five years. Okay, fair enough. So, like, in the more broader public consciousness, in the last five years, but we've heard blockchain since then, really. Yes. So, yeah, it's just sort of like the the benefits of a blockchain are, you know, that there's, you know, you can prove ownership and prove that transactions have taken place and like, and the concept is fine, but you know, it's just the big issue with the blockchains is that a lot of them, you know, the, the algorithms and stuff are so inefficient in verifying because part of the issue is that like, you need to be able to verify all the way back to the beginning of time and because all of it's based cumulatively. So like mm-hmm. if there's a new transaction, it gets put on to the end but that has to be verified against the whole everything and all the rest of it. So, like, from the beginning of time, is this valid and whatever? Like, it, it makes sense. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the ultimate, like, general ledger, if you want to think about it like that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, and it's a general ledger that can't be edited. Like, it's a one-way thing that has to be right the second it goes into it. So it basically, theoretically makes all, you know, source of, uh, like the the provenance of things and all of the 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 numbers are going to be right in theory mm-hmm. so it's fine but this with all of the math and everything and all the number crunching that has to go into these blockchains that might have a lot of different transactions going into it this is where the economic or the, the environmental impact comes from so companies tech companies have been trying in the last year or so They've gotten a bad rap because of this, specifically because of like what we've seen happen with all these like server farms and like Bitcoin mining farms and stuff in China and whatnot, basically destroying the environment. Yes. Like just kind of like way worse than any oil or anything. <laughs> like or coal plants or yeah. whatever else. Or the or especially in China where a lot of their energy is generated from coal burning plants. Yeah. So it's basically coal burning and stuff has gone into overdrive to help power all of this. Bitcoin mining and blockchain validation and stuff that's been happening, thus causing this huge environmental impact that's basically like scaling up the end of the world in, mm-hmm. a, in a way that's basically been unprecedented so far. So obviously tech companies have this steep PR battle to have to go against because really, like, if you want to use a blockchain, you have to kind of now at this point prove that, like, no, it's going to be an ethical thing to do, and we're not just contributing to, you know, this this ending of our world, essentially. Um, and Kickstarter seems like they want to get into the blockchain to, you know, help validate uh, crowdfunding pledges and things like that, which makes sense as well. And I guess because they know that there's this big stigma around blockchain now with most of, you know, the general people in the world who understand hey, if you wreck the earth, where are we going to live? Um, so they're trying to uh, go on, go with a company called Celo, which is a public blockchain, which is a company also they're 
trying to m- maintain a carbon negative footprint for their infrastructure uh, to both allow access open like open access to everyone in the world on this blockchain in a hopefully environmental environmentally sustainable way really uh, that'd be the ideal uh situation i'm anytime i see something listed or or dubbed as carbon negative i'm curious to know if that means it's uh not really a polluter not you know is it so an en- energy efficient uh, and also has means of energy generation through green energy solar wind whatever yeah, or, or is it a big polluter and it's just buying credits exactly that's the that's the problem that I have with this. That that's the thing I was going to mention as well. Where, just like I don't like nebulous statements like saying, "Oh, we're a million times you know more efficient," I also don't like saying we're carbon neutral mm-hmm. or carbon or negative. carbon negative because that doesn't always mean we're doing an environmentally healthy thing. It could mean, yeah, we're you know pumping like. A shitload of, you know, harmful toxins into the air and we're d- destroying the ozone layer, but we're planting 10,000 trees a day. And it's like, yeah, but like. It's going to take a while for those trees to do anything. Yeah. Are those trees going to be alive w- with no ozone to protect? Like, what do you. <laughs> it- I, I, these statements that, that, you know, you've come across, I've come across, we hear, you know, and we'll hear more and more going forward, you know, in terms of the blockchain or just companies uh, in general as the environment just gets worse and worse and they try to put a green spin on things, terms like carbon negative, carbon neutral, or whatever the case might be. They remind me of when someone says, oh, they're they're trying to eat healthy because they had a salad for lunch, but then they just have like a friggin' piece of cake for dessert. Yeah, or, well, really, like, the people who are still... It's really like when you're saying, I'm trying to eat healthy, so you buy, like, the the fat-free version of a thing, but still eat a whole package of it yeah. in one sitting. Well, you get, like, the light, uh, you know, low-calorie ice cream or something, but you finish the tub. Yeah. Or it, you're I mean, eat, trying to eat healthy, but you're still going for smoke breaks. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, sure, like, small changes do, you know, have an impact, but... They're not the big changes you're trying to say they are. Like, they are still small changes. That they are. And and I guess small changes eventually add up, but it takes a whole lot of them, and they can be derailed by big problems along the way. Yeah. Uh, There's that. So Kickstarter, they're planning to move their crowdfunding platform over to the blockchain, and uh, in a blog post the company recently posted to their website, uh, they detailed their plans to develop a, quote, decentralized crowdfunding protocol so people can, quote, launch and fund creative projects anywhere. And they'll, again, be using the the CeeLo public blockchain, which says it's carbon negative. Hopefully it is, whatever. Uh, but in a blog post, the company says, quote, this openness enables everyone who is interested in the promise of crowdfunding to help build its future and have a say and stake in how it works. Blockchain will also be, will also open the potential to be rewarded for contributing to the systems that you use every day, end quote. So this new crowdfunding Open uh, blockchain system does not yet have a name, but will be independent from Kickstarter, though we'll still have some seed funding from Kickstarter itself. And Kickstarter will then switch over to this new infrastructure, this new open blockchain infrastructure, once it's actually up and running. But the front-end user experience will remain the same as we understand Kickstarter to be nowadays, really. Yeah. 
So they're building a, a an open blockchain platform uh, for crowdfunding and hope it takes off. Yeah, and, and hopefully when they say carbon negative, they actually mean like they're really like putting power back into the 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 grid. The grid, really, like that they're maybe using all solar, wind, whatever reusable means of technology, like that they can, or renewable, not reusable, but renewable mm-hmm. technology. You know, like uh <laughs> human humans powering, you know, whatever by like, you know, having spin glasses or something. Whatever they want to do to make it carbon negative. If that's what they're actually doing, great. But still, like, we have our doubts and, yeah. It's basically like, show me the money is what I want to say. Very much so. Uh, yeah. Prove your work or show your work like you had to do in math class. Yeah. And what, what you, what the whole point of the blockchain is, is proof of work, right? That's I, true. I, unironically, I'm saying this, like, if only there was like, an analog blockchain that we can use, you know, like eyes and cameras and things like that, or like whatever to actually record like, Hey, you're not carbon negative at all. <laughs> like anyways. Uh, so Kickstarter, when they made this statement about, you know, building and developing the, the open, uh, open blockchain platform for crowdfunding, uh, there was the blog post on the company's page. And then there was a separate additional blog blog post that was put out by Perry Chen and Aziz Hassan. Perry Chen is the founder and chair of Kickstarter. Aziz Hassan is the CEO of Kickstarter. Uh, their combined statement put out, uh, I guess, was to give a few more details on how this is going to work. But it had an interesting pull quote that also struck me because in their blog post, it says at one point, quote, like the Internet in the early 1990s, the blockchain is a nascent technology whose story is not yet written. CeeLo's efforts around minimizing environmental impact and focus on global accessibility through mobile access to the blockchain reminds us that the best way to get better systems is to build better systems, end quote. So drawing a parallel to the Internet in the early 90s, which was very much a Wild West uh, time of figuring it out, and uh, I guess uh, comparing it to then, uh, Kickstarter itself is old. Kickstarter's 12 years old. Yeah. it. Yeah. I remember when it came out, and it was uh, interesting. And in, in some ways, it has been a, a big uh, disruptive technology that has changed some things for the better. But, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's good that they're trying something anyways. Like, you know, big companies should be trying things at the very least, like... And not just saying they're trying things, but like actually trying things. Yes, and be able to demonstrate and show what it is they're doing, how it's working, what the benefits are, and this, that, and the other thing. Though I can't help but just also think of like some of those ads that you've seen. Like, I'm going to say they're American ads because, like, in Canada, that's not really. I don't think they're allowed to advertise in the same way. But Shell in America, it's like when they have that campaign for clean coal. Oh yeah, I vaguely recall that. Yeah, and it's just one of these weird things where it's like, oh, we're pushing for, you know, a cleaner burning energy, blah, 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 which is why we're choosing coal. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter how much, you know, stuff you can put around to prevent the, you know, emissions and stuff. You're still burning coal, a finite resource. Like, what? It's like, sure, even if you can offset the the emissions from the burning of it, there's the production of coal, which is horrendously bad. Yeah. 
and all the energy and effort that goes into the production of coal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a two-sided sword. It kills you both ways. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> I, I can't help but think that, like, or I can't help but worry that some of these statements that, you know, these companies are making about, like, the technologies they're going with and trying to, you know, be more ethical and this and that and blah, 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 is analogous to this clean coal thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> We're living in weird times. We are. They're only going to get weirder, too. Yeah. yeah as uh, the dystopia marches forward. Yeah. But speaking of technology, another big story we've talked uh, several times about through the course of this calendar year has been the ongoing legal situation between Epic Games and Apple Core. Uh, not Apple Records, Apple yeah. Core. Uh, you know, Apple computers, if you will, but, you know, the big evil company that has way too much money, yep. Apple, you've probably got some of their products, perhaps in your hand, on your person, in your house, at some point in your car, eventually. Yeah, in this very room that we're recording the podcast in. Yes. You know, like, unfortunately, I mean, well, yeah, anyways. Gotta record on something. Yeah. So Apple, yes, they've been uh, engaged in legal doings with Epic Games through the course of this year. And in September, uh, the lawsuit between Epic Games and Apple reached a conclusion when Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers rendered a ruling that wasn't really uh, in favor of one or the other. It uh, it ultimately gauged that, that... Apple was well within their means and justified in kicking Epic Games and Fortnite off their iOS platforms and the App Store, uh, but it did have one significant part in there that required Apple to start allow developers and applications to begin accepting payments outside Apple's in-app purchase system starting on December 9th. So that was, uh, at the time this program was being released, just a few days ago, However, it did not come to pass because the day before it was set to come to pass, Apple was able to receive a stay on that particular order that was brought down in September. So it doesn't reverse the ruling. It simply puts it on hold until a a higher appeals court can fully hear the case. But that's going to take months. Yeah. So the ruling, in part, uh, from the three-panel uh, uh, appeals court uh, judges, reads, quote, Apple has demonstrated at minimum that its appeal raises serious questions on the merits of the district court's determination. Therefore, we grant Apple's motion to stay part one of paragraph one of the permanent injunction. The stay will remain in fact until the mandate issues in this appeal, end quote. So that's paragraph one, uh, uh, part one of the paragraph one from Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers. That's the part that would have opened the Apple system up to uh, uh, people being able to use uh, and accept payments through non-iOS means, really. Yeah, and what Apple themselves said. So uh, there was a a spokesperson from Amy, uh, Apple named uh, Marnie Goldberg. Uh, she released a statement, or Apple released a statement with, I guess, her being the face for the statement, uh, being that our concern is these changes, uh, I'm quoting here, our concern is that these changes would have created new pri- privacy and security risks and disrupted the user experience customers love about the App Store. Uh, we want to thank the court for granting this stay while the appeals process continues. End quote. So, more Apple nonsense, it sounds like? Oh, very much so. Like, yeah, you can say... <laughs> Oh, well, we're concerned about privacy problems and stuff now. It's like, 
be, well, as long as, I mean, you can argue against, like, there's, there's actual industry standards surrounding payment cards, like, called PCI compliance that, if you are a company taking payments, you need to be PCI compliant. Especially if you, you know, <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't say especially if you make enough money, but no, like, you need to be P- PCI compliant. So, if there's privacy concerns, it shouldn't, like, you're, realistically, it should just be that, you know, people who have privacy concerns should still be able to report them. Not that, you should not allow the option, right? Mm-hmm. Because privacy concerns can still exist with the current app store. Sure can. There, like, there's nothing saying that the Apple system is 100% foolproof yeah. and, and secure like Fort Knox. Yeah. Which is like, it's a ridiculous statement to make, I think. Uh, absolutely, but uh, it's Apple smiling as they get a delay on this uh, this judge's order. Yeah, and they get to keep their monopoly on this payment thing for a few more months and keep getting their, you know, use our platform cuts of 30% on every transaction, which is what they want to maintain. Exactly. So, uh, this is going to drag on basically for another year. I'm going to guess because this has been appealed now to a higher court. Uh, it will render its judgment that will be appealed by one party or the other. And it's, uh, you know what? I think one year is perhaps being too generous. This is being uh, appealed and going to continue on for at least two to three more years. Probably, if not five to ten. Yeah. Like, this is a big enough deal that Apple is going to do every possible thing they can to maintain the status quo that they've created. Oh, yeah. Like, this is like 30% of every transaction being made on the App Store is huge. Like, they wouldn't want to let that slip certainly like, not that's one of the major contributing factors to why they're a two trillion dollar company and that being said even if this was opened up uh to uh companies being able to accept payments outside the apple in-app uh payment system it's not as though a hundred percent of all the transactions suddenly become outside the apple system no a small percentage would but that number would eventually grow and grow and grow and then apple's revenues from this would de Shrink and shrink and shrink. Yeah. So, you know, eventually I think Apple will maybe start lessening their take, but not until they're forced to. And uh, that will likely come once this uh, appeals process works its way through all of the higher courts in the United States, because uh, there's no real justice um, until you've appealed something all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And let's face it, someone's going to appeal this to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and even then, at that point, you're going to end up with, you know, I don't want to say this, you know, too disparagingly, but a bunch of old people who might not understand technology. Yeah. Really ruling on a technology thing. (laughs) So, (laughs) will it be fair? I don't know. Will it be understood? Who knows? That's that's up to the lawyers. Yeah, to be able to make those persuasive arguments. So, 
we'll see where this, uh, what twists and turns uh, this story has going forward into 2022 and beyond. But uh, as we are now in the month of December, uh, many outlets, many people, many places doing their best of uh, lists, year interview lists, you know, things I listen to this year type lists, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I guess one of those best of type uh, lists takes the form of Jeff Keighley's Game Awards, which happens... Every December, December for the last couple of years now, it is Jeff Keighley putting it on basically himself with a, you know, help of a team of people. It's not him running around doing everything. Yeah, and it's being funded by various advertisers and stuff. Like, it's not just out of pocket for him and anything. Like, he's the impresario behind it, but yeah, there's still a team of people involved in putting it together. Yes, but he's the main face of it, and he yeah. acts as the, the host and MC for the night's affairs, and it was just a couple of days prior to this program being released, this episode being released, that uh, this year's edition of the Game Awards went down in Los Angeles, back to being a full in-person event, whereas last year was just the virtual version of the event. This year, again, people gathered all together inside the theater in Los Angeles, awards were handed out, speeches were given, musical performances were enjoyed by the people in attendance, and we're going to get to some of the winners uh, that uh, walked home with a, a winged uh, arm body trophy thing. <laughs> it's a weird looking trophy. It's some, it looks like it uh, would be on the hood of like a Rolls Royce or uh, some sort of fancy uh, well-to-do car that you pay six figures for, but it's a trophy to honor the best, uh, quote unquote, best in video games for the calendar year. So we're not going to go through all the categories because there's an unwieldy amount of categories here. We're not going to go through all of them. It, it starts to get into, you know, content creators of the year, esports team of the year, esports coach of the year, esports event of the year, things of that nature. Yeah. So, so similar to what we talked about when we mentioned the, uh, the nominees, I think we can probably just keep it to a tight four or five, maybe six categories, I think. Yeah. It's some. We'll go through some. If you want to read through all the winners of each category, we link to that information on our website, thearcadeshow.com. So read it for yourself. We'll just kind of give you the Coles Notes uh, abbreviated version here. So I think the best place to start would be at the top with the Game of the Year Award. Yeah. So, I mean, there were a number of things, a uh, number of games nominated, but ultimately the winner turned into It Takes Two, beating out Deathloop, Metroid Dread, Psychonauts 2, Ratchet & Clank, Rift Apart, and Resident Evil Village. Uh, so, yeah, congratulations to It Takes Two. But, you know, a couple of these other categories almost seem like they're, I don't want to just say duplicates of the best game category, but there's a few of these categories that kind of are duplicates, duplicates, just so you get to like kind of spread the praise around evenly. One of the other ones being best game direction. And it's, frankly, it's almost the same games nominated, uh, but this one, Deathloop was the winner of best game direction, beating out It Takes Two, Returnal, Cycle Knots 2, and Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. And then somewhat still similar in that vein, a lot of those uh, nominated games appeared in the Best Narrative category, yeah, which was won by Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, which I believe was done by Square Enix, and it was up against Deathloop, It Takes Two, Life is Strange, True Colors, and Psychonauts 2. So It Takes Two had a lot of nominations. It took the big award. Uh, interestingly, It Takes Two also won the award for Best Family Game. 
Rare is the occasion when something in the best family game category wins any big award, but It Takes Two won the best family game category. It was up against Mario Party Superstars, New Pokemon Snap, Super Mario 3D World and Bowser's Fury, and WarioWare Get It Together. So, almost an entire Nintendo category. Yeah, just having Nintendo beaten out by It Takes Two. Which, I mean, at least they uh, it won the Best uh, Overall Game of the Year award, so it makes sense. Otherwise, uh, it kind of shows Nintendo did not pay enough. <laughs> yeah, because at the end of the day, that's sort of the thing behind all this award, right? Well, that, that's what I've long suspected, but uh, you never can prove it, but that is just my own internally held belief. It sounds like it might be yours as well. Yeah, because, you know, I might have a little bit of a healthy level of dit- distrust towards award shows in general, for that very reason? I no. mean, I will, so long as I am not winning things at these award shows. And then once I do, it's totally legit. Oh, yeah, I'd like to thank the Academy, for sure. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Um, uh, Nintendo did actually win one award. Uh, Metroid Dread was, uh, not, was named the winner of the Best Action Adventure Game category. It beat out Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart, Resident Evil Village, and Psychonauts 2. So... Take that for whatever it's worth. And I, just one other category I'd like to mention uh, that I think also feels like, in a way, kind of might lend credence to that whole pay-for nomination thing. Because I, I don't recall if we actually mentioned this category when we were talking about this originally, but the best RPG category okay. was the, uh, you know, when you see the nominees, would anyone have actually nominated, like, legitimately Cyberpunk 2077 as Best RPG? That's a good question. So, given the fact that it was nominated here, hmm, that, that should maybe raise a couple of questions here, but yeah, that, it didn't win, thankfully. I mean, Tales of Arise won that, beating out Shin Megami Tensei 5, uh, Scarlet Nexus, Monster Hunter Rise, and Cyberpunk 2077, but yeah. Yeah. Just, just the one category I wanted to mention because it just sort of feels kind of like, CD Projekt Red just might have had a lot of money to put towards this just to try to <laughs> do mm-hmm. a bit of damage control. Like, oh, no, see? It was still nominated for Best RPG. Even but the fact that everyone universally was like, this game was a pile of dog shit when it came out. What did you release an unfinished game for? Yeah, that game was flooded with problems across the, the consoles. The PC version wasn't as bad as I recall. Yeah, and eventually they did kind of fix a lot of the issues even on the consoles, but still it doesn't change the fact that, like, it had basically, like, eight months of it just being a buggy, nightmarish mess. Yeah, what they released was a broken game. Yeah. It was a broken, incomplete game that managed to somehow, the underdog story, big major company puts a lot of money into a game, releases broken and uh, unfinished, but then, through hard work and determination and, you know, a couple montages, gets nominated for an award. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So it's a tale as old as time. Yeah. Uh, one last category I want to talk about here because we did talk about it when the nominations came out. The most anticipated game category. Yeah, good God. Speaking of uh, payments uh, or not, you know, we don't know, but we have suspicions. So the nominees again for most most anticipated game, not moist like my mouth <laughs> wants to say. Most anticipated game, Starfield, Legend of Zelda, uh, or the sequel to Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild that still does not have an official name, uh, Horizon Forbidden West, God of War Ragnarok, and Elden Ring, with the winner ultimately being named as Elden Ring. So, yeah. 
FromSoft, uh, they got the nod for this category. With some help from George R. R. Martin, who <laughs> helped with the lore of the game. So let's not forget that. That's true. So uh, is it a surprise? I don't know. Like, what might How do you judge a game that's not actually released yet? Like, maybe what happened with some of these categories, I'll give it a little bit of the, you know, you know, benefit of the doubt to a point. Maybe the nomination was gained through payment, but maybe once the nominations were all kind of set, it had to actually be taken to a vote of industry professionals to say, okay, which of these five would you vote for? Mm -hmm. Which is fair. Enough, I guess. It's not actually fair, but, you know, it's fair enough of like, okay, fine. It's the, it's, it's the appearance of fairness. Yeah. So, like, there's there's probably a degree of people actually voting on a thing as opposed to just, well, who paid the most mm-hmm. overall. But, like, the nominations were probably gained through who paid the most. We'll never know, but we can always deeply suspect. So, again, there's a whole lot of categories at these Game Awards. Uh, we're not going to cover all the categories, all the winners. Yeah. We just don't care. Yeah, if, if you want to look at it, look at our website, thearcadeshow.com. We've got a link there to, to the whole complete list. And yeah. Yeah. It's it, for your perusal. We, we just don't care about a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. Just uh, straight up honest, we don't care. Yeah. Uh, but moving on into things we can look forward to in next year, which is only like a couple of weeks away. Yep. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Whew, once we get to 2022 though, man, everything's gonna be, gonna be better. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's not like time is accumulated forward March that all the new stuff is based on all the stuff that happened previously or anything. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Wipes it clean. Like, the, the clock rolls over and you're good. It's a new calendar. you got, like, a new SpongeBob calendar up on the wall. <laughs> you're golden. Okay? Yeah, Last exactly. year's done. It's wiped. It's in the drawer. Possibly the recycling bin. Who knows? It's gone. Doesn't matter. Not going to affect you in this new year, 2022. But uh, some companies will take it as an opportunity to uh, go for a fresh start. And one of those companies is... Uh, is PUBG player or it is yeah they are PUBG now yeah it was players unknown but they then they changed the name to PUBG yeah it's PUBG Battlegrounds is what the game is called even though that's a little bit like saying you know an ATM machine or a pin number you know yes it's kind of like yeah the BG in PUBG was Battlegrounds so you're saying player unknown Battlegrounds colon Battlegrounds anyways all that aside the game is called PUBG Battlegrounds. And, you know, it's, uh, it's going, the, the big thing, the lead up here that we're talking about here is that it's going free to play on January 12th on PC, PlayStation, and Xbox, uh, which is what the publisher Crafton announced during the Game Awards. So, you know, it's sort of the OG Battle Royale game that, you know, was really kind of, I don't want to say the, was stolen by, but it was definitely the inspiration for Fortnite and, mm-hmm. you know, some of these other Battle Royale modes in various other games, like Call of Duty and whatnot, but uh, it's the OG one. It is the OG. Uh, it was the first one. It is not the most popular one. No, it's not. But maybe this is them trying to maybe finally mimic a little bit of, like, the, the model that Fortnite used, because Fortnite is also free-to-play. It is free-to-play, and I think it's that free-to-play model that really helped Fortnite eat PUBG's lunch. Yeah. No, granted, like, Epic Games is a bigger company than Player Unknown. True. So very true. Yeah. So they could afford to. 
Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that choice was made. Uh, in 2017 is when, uh, PUBG or PUBG Battlegrounds was launched and was popular. It's, it's had its following. There's been some, some devoted fans of it since then, still to, and still to this day, even in the, uh, very, very clouded, very crowded market of Battle Royale games, but, uh, they are making the decision to go free to play to hopefully appeal and attract a new audience and different, uh, audiences. Uh, free, free players who sign up and join PUBG Battlegrounds will gain a slightly different offering from those who pay, uh, uh, you'll need a $12.99 account upgrade to Battlegrounds Plus to unlock ranked and custom match modes, plus some extra currency and other bits. Uh, this will also get you some in-game items. Existing owners will get this and will not have to pay. So that's good. So it sounds like what you're getting with the free-to-play model is just a very stripped-down, basic approach to PUBG. Yeah. Like, probably not a lot of matchmaking options. You just kind of jump in and play... And then however you rank, you rank, and there's not really any sort of history or anything. Mm-hmm. But if you want to actually have ranked history and stuff, you pay 13 bucks. So yeah. interesting. If your whole interest in the game is just literally playing it with whoever and doing whatever, free-to-play might be just good enough. Yeah. But once you get good enough and really want to start, you know, seeing your name in lights, so to speak, pay the 13 bucks and call it a day. Maybe it'll work out for them. I mean, I, I don't wish them, you know, any particular ill will. I mean, they are sort of, it, it, they're in a weird position where they're sort of like the original ones who came up with the idea and then a bunch of other people just kind of took it from them and left them in the dust. So it's kind of a crap situation they've been in. It is. What do you really do at that point? Yeah. So it's like Netscape with their navigator uh, application back on the... uh <laughs> Windows computers systems from back in the day. Yeah, and then Microsoft's like, oh, we like that. We're going to do our own version. And then, yeah, here's uh, Internet Explorer. That's that's what people use the Internet with. Yep. But then, of course, like, you know, <laughs> an antitrust lawsuit happened out of that. So where's the antitrust lawsuit against Fortnite? Hmm? Oh, but actually, Fortnite, <laughs> we're getting a little meta now because now Epic Games is going against Apple for very <laughs> kind of antitrust type ideas, too. Hmm. Full circle, eh? Interesting. It's true. Uh, one last news item here to close out the last regular show we have for you in the year of 2021. Uh, perhaps you are one of those people who's been looking forward to some new technology, uh, specifically someone who's been looking forward to an offering from the company Analog. They have uh, been working on and looking to release their pocket handheld gaming system for a while. Uh, the pocket gaming system done by Analog is... It's a retro console that can play a whole bunch of old handheld games, uh, like from the Game Boy, Game Gear, and whatnot. You can buy uh, add-ons and slots to uh, have it play other things, like TurboGrafx games or Atari Lynx games or things of that nature. You can buy a dock to have it play on your big TV in your living room or bedroom, bathroom, whatever the case might be, garage. Uh, but it, it's a really interesting uh, looking piece of tech that uh, I'm intrigued by, but it's been encountering some shipping problems and uh, supply chain issues, as many companies have for the last several months and will continue to experience for the next several months, uh, not just supply chain, but also production issues because of, well, the, the bottleneck from the pandemic and everything else. So uh, 
they stated that they're, uh, they would be officially starting their shipping of units on December 13th, which is great. Uh, and starting December 14th, the window for pre-orders will open once again on the pocket device. Uh, the first units from those pre-orders will start shipping out in early 2022. So the pre-orders begin at 8 a.m. Pacific time or 11 a.m. Eastern time on December 14th, 2021. People who pre-order then will be limited to two units each. And you will fall into one of three fulfillment groups. And cross your fingers, cross your toes, pray to whatever deity you want uh, and you think will land you in group A, because that's where you want to be, because people who go through this pre-order and get into group A can expect to get their analog pocket in the first quarter of 2022. People put into group B will have to wait until the second half of 2022, possibly closer to the end. If you're filed and shuffled into Group C from these pre-orders for the Analog Pocket, your delivery date isn't until 2023. Yeah. So, by that point, you'll have probably forgotten you even ordered the damn thing. Yeah, exactly. So, if there is that. Uh, be aware of that if you're interested in this at all, uh, which I know I am. It certainly looks interesting to me, and I think uh, it's been... It looked interesting to you, but uh, uh, the panic uh, playdate uh, was also something that caught your attention around the same time as well. Yeah, I mean, I... I and waiting on that as well. Yeah, I'm waiting on that. I mean, I, I did put in for pre-order, so they say it should be, I think, early 2022 for me. So, I don't know. This does look interesting. I'm just kind of going through their website for it as well, and yeah, it's still does look slick as hell. Like, all of the, oh, all yeah. the analog stuff looks really nice. Um, and yeah, like there's no denying that, but, uh, yeah, it's that whole thing of just like, we're only going to offer 50,000 units or whatever number. Mm -hmm. It's just like with no potential of buying another one ever, basically. So that's a bit of a frustrating business model to me and I'm not a big fan of it. I, I, I understand. I, I can certainly see uh, where you're coming from with that. Uh, another frustration that people have uh, with this analog pocket or will have, when the pre-order window opens up again, is that the analog pocket unit itself, uh, the, I guess, new modern Game Boy-looking design, uh, that machine itself has increased in price, going from $200 originally to now it's listed at $219. Again, that is just talked up to supply chain issues, cost of parts, uh, uh, inflation, just the cost of everything. So just the handheld unit itself is going up. The other accessories, like the link cables, audio cables, cartridge adapters, the dock, things of that nature, those are all remaining at the same price points as when they were initially uh, shown off and announced, but just the unit itself is going up by $19. So be aware of that. If you know someone who is interested in this and don't know what else to get them for Christmas time, well, there you go. This is an idea. You can get them a pre-order for it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's better than a pack of socks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mind you, the older you get, there's a certain level of appreciation that a bag of socks, you know, brings, you know. It's, hey, hey, you got a bag of socks and you didn't have to go buy it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, take this information and do with it whatever you want, but uh be aware that chances are it's going to sell out hella fast again. So Yep, and uh, even if they uh, announce these windows of like first half of 2022 or back half of 2022, those uh, shipping windows could and very likely will change as we get closer to them. 
because the supply chain issues aren't exactly resolving themselves too quickly, uh, as we yeah. are finding out. They're still dragging on and on and on. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there's no signs of them ever resolving themselves, which also seems a bit suspicious to me, but I don't want to put too much of a tin tinfoil hat on today. Well, I mean, it's just another aspect of our dystopian future. Yeah, where <laughs> we're just... A couple of ships just not being able to dock in a place can kind of wreck everything for months and months and months. If not years. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that's to say nothing of the environmental damage they're doing just being docked off the coast of California. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Who who would have known? Hmm. Weird. It's, it's like a, a giant disruption to uh, the global economy all at once was maybe a bad thing. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> It's almost like the way that everything is set up doesn't really make sense, and now it's coming into focus, right? Hmm. It's almost like it was a house of cards, and that very base bottom layer has, you know, the table that uh, is holding that base layer up is kind of shifted, and now some of those cards in the bottom layer, they're not standing properly, and they're just kind of falling flat, if not... uh, They're now flush with the table, no longer giving support to the cards above. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Weird. Very weird, right? It sure is. (laughs) But those are conversations for a different day, possibly even a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, in the here and now, we have one last order of business to get to. That is the blast from the past. It is It is the portion of the show where we always recommend uh, and talk about, or at the very least talk about some things that uh, we think you should check out and or try and or are just worth uh, talking about because they are pieces of uh, media that are celebrating milestone anniversaries, and we have two items to talk about this week. We have one which is a video game, one which is a movie, one that is 15 years old, one that is 20 years old. Uh, where would you like to start this week? Well, we could probably start with a video game first, I think. Uh, fair enough, uh, you think, and so it shall be. The video game we are going to talk about is 15 years old. It is uh, a game that was released for the Nintendo GameCube, the last ever title released for the Nintendo GameCube. Uh, it came out actually a month after the launch of Nintendo's next brand new console at the time. Yeah, it also came out for that next console as well. It, it did, and a lot of people uh, were saps like me who bought it for that uh, new console and uh, didn't quite realize at the time, but uh, soon found out that uh, this version was the better version of it. Uh, I'm talking about The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess that came out on December 11th, 2006 for the Nintendo GameCube. It is the superior of the two Twilight Princess versions, the other one being on the Wii that was released on November or in November of 2006 as a launch title for the Nintendo Wii. And if you played it on the Wii, like me, you most likely were like me and got annoyed real fast with the motion controls and having to swing to strike or to use Link's sword for everything. And thank God you got this game on GameCube. Yes. So I could play a proper console version of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, conversely, the GameCube version was a lot more traditional. Like, you know, you only have to press a button to swing the sword. Which in a Zelda game, you swing a sword a lot. It's kind of a staple of the combat. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and it's kind of like... This game, you know, going also back to, like, really, like, Ocarina of Time and stuff, had some kind of, like, I'm going to say a little bit tight combat, like, you Mm -hmm. know, in terms of controls and stuff. I don't want to say comparable to Dark Souls, because I'm sure that'll upset some people or 
raise some, you know, hairs on the back of people's necks when they get defensive of how, like, great Dark Souls and the whole Souls-like experience is, but it's kind of similar, like, you know, there's a lot of moves and stuff that are dependent on specific button presses and timings and things like that, that, you know, you can't really properly accomplish with kind of clunky motion controls, Mm -hmm. where you're just swinging your arm around for a sword, like, like, it's not that great, so... Yeah, the, it the gets game, tiresome. Yeah, it does, and it's not the shortest of all games in the world either. So, I mean, it's <laughs> Zelda games usually aren't. No, like they're they're you're in be, for an experience. Yeah, like you're you're in for like you know a twenty plus hour experience, anyways, at the very least. So you're <laughs> you're twenty hours of flailing your arm around is not an insignificant amount. No, that's how you get wee elbow and wee shoulder and a broken TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, thankfully, I did not because I realized early on I did not want to play Twilight Princess on the Wii uh, and instead, thankfully, was able to borrow it from you on the GameCube, which, as I said, is the superior version. And Twilight Princess, uh, a really enjoyable and solid uh, Legend of Zelda game experience. Um you know, coming out at the tail end of the GameCube, I mean, engine-wise and whatnot, it's basically the same game on both the Wii and the GameCube because the Wii hardware is not that different from the GameCube hardware. So, but it looked really, really nice. I, I distinctly recall there being scenes with, uh, say, Link, uh, you know, at a waterfall, and it, it went for, like, realistic visuals. Yeah. Which was a stark contrast to the other Legend of Zelda GameCube game, Wind Waker, which went, no, it went simplistic, cartoony, cel-shaded graphics. Yeah, like, I, I do distinctly remember, like, we've talked about this at the time, where, like, now history has now recognized Wind Waker as being a, you know, a great Zelda game, but at the time there felt like there was like a lot of backlash from a lot of people who didn't like the cartoony aspect. And I think as a result, this game went totally the opposite direction and went, fine, we're going to go like more, less cartoony then with this one and bring it like, you know, more towards what you think Ocarina of Time and, you know, Majora's Mask were going to be like, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, again, the cel-shaded cartoony adventure that Wind Waker was. But yeah, I mean, either way, like, they're, they're classic Zelda games. I mean, this one in particular, great. I mean, I haven't played it in years, and I, I'm currently lending my copy out to someone, uh, but maybe I'll get it back at some point just to play it again. So, we'll see. Yeah, this was the, the entry in the Legend of Zelda franchise where Link was able to turn into a wolf. And, uh, had the, uh, assist- assistance of the, oh, it was Midna. Midna yeah. was the, uh, like, orange-haired uh, creature. Yeah, creature from a different realm or something. Like, it was basically the shadow world was yes. kind of spilling into the real world, and they needed help to keep the barrier up or some kind of thing, from what I recall. Again, it's been a long time since I played it. it ultimately, gameplay-wise, it became, and storyline-wise, it kind of became a standard Zelda affair. Uh, I think once he got kind of got through the first little bit, you had to uh, collect tears from gods or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And, and then collect souls. So we're not, ultimately, it was another collecting mission, as we see oftentimes in Legend of Zelda games, like up to and prior to that point. You know, in, if you weren't collecting the eight pieces of the... Uh, the, the crystal. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the eight crystals to, you know, put Re-for- the Triforce yeah. back together or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you were collecting whatever else in this game. Standard affair, but it just looked really nice, really well done, solid controls, 
a worthwhile experience and Midna, an interesting character. Uh, we'll see what they do with Midna, say, going forward in the Legend of Zelda universe uh, and how that all plays itself out. But Twilight Princess, get the GameCube version. Yeah. But let's move on and talk about the other item this week, which is a movie that is 20 years old. It uh, was released on December 14th, 2001. It uh, was the second second major movie by by a director who I think you and I can speak more about now than we could back then. Yeah. The movie is The Royal Tenenbaums, and it was the second major effort done by director Wes Anderson. Yeah, the first being Rushmore, followed by this... Then followed by, you know, a ton of other movies. Like Life Aquatic. Um, yeah, uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, Isle of Dogs more recently, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, most recently being The French Dispatch, which I think has just kind of left theaters, but if you ever have a chance to watch it, highly recommend it. But uh, we'll talk about that in even just a second. But this is a Wes Anderson movie that I haven't actually seen. Yeah, it seems as though you and I are kind of getting into the Wes Anderson filmography around the same time, uh, but we're seemingly working backwards. Yeah, like, it's been about probably the last two or three years that I've just been kind of, like, going through every now and then going, oh, I should probably check this one out. Because, you know, over the years, there have been a few Wes Anderson movies that I have seen kind of more around when they would have been newer, like... Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, I remember seeing sort of close to when it came out, and I thought it was great. And, you know, like, there's ones you miss and things like that here and there. But, like, yeah, I've I've never had an experience personally where I've never enjoyed what I was watching. I've always kind of, like, really enjoyed what I see when it comes to Wes Anderson. And to, to, so much to the point where, after watching The French Dispatch, I texted you going, I think I might have to actually consider him one of my favorite filmmakers now. And I can totally see that. Yeah. Uh, he has, uh, from what I've seen of the five films I've seen of his so far, uh, he has not disappointed me. Uh, again, most recently, French Dispatch. Watch it when you get a chance. Worth it. I thoroughly enjoyed myself and a very distinct style. Both oh, yeah. in terms of, like, a very distinct style throughout the movie, and he's covering a whole lot in that distinct style in terms of the writing, the concept of stories that he tells in his movies. Um, as you've shown me, uh, people have cut together uh, supercuts of his supersymmetry in his films. Yes. His visual style. Um, you see a lot of the same actors uh, appear in his movies throughout the years and years and years. So uh, it's an interesting approach that Wes Anderson takes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like, I want to say like hyper-realism or something, where nothing seems that out of the ordinary, except like when you look at it on its surface, nothing in a scene is that weird, mm-hmm. but it's how everything is laid out that's just like absurd and perfect looking. Like, there's not a single scene in a Wes Anderson movie that, like, if you're pausing a Wes Anderson movie almost at any point, it always looks amazing. His always. Com- his composition and the team he has in the photography department, the, the visuals department, are just aces. Yeah. They're top notch. There was, uh, it, and it's fresh in my mind, so I'll go back to it now, the French Dispatch. Let's face it, 99% of the people out there have not seen French Dispatch. Yeah, I know when we went to go see it, it was on the last day it was available because it was the only day that we could make it work. But yeah, when we went to go <laughs> book our tickets, there was literally like three other seats taken. And we were kind of cutting it close, I thought. It was like, oh, the whole theater's still free. Okay, we'll be fine. There's no issue getting <laughs> no issue getting seats here for us, so great. 
Yeah, uh, I think when we when I got to see it like maybe two weeks prior to you, there was like fifteen to twenty people in the theater. So steadily decline as the weeks went on. But uh, early on in the French Dispatch, there's a scene where a waiter is running a a tray of cocktails up to. Uh, the offices of uh, the writing staff of this magazine, the French Dispatch. And it, the camera is literally just locked off on an extreme wide shot showing the facade of a building. But through that, uh, uh, on that facade of the building, you see cutouts where there's balconies and you see windows that show uh, ladders and stairwells and whatnot. And you f- are able to follow the path of this waiter as he's working his way up to the top of the building. It's like a Rube Goldberg machine. It's like a Rube Goldberg machine, but it's also a painting. Yeah, exactly. Like, it very much struck me as like, this is just a painting. Yeah, because a big thing about a lot of Wes Anderson stuff that I've seen is he does a lot of interesting stuff with perspective and models. So, like, again, like, we're not really talking about the Royal Tenant Bombs, because I, I know, like, I mentioned, I don't think either of us have seen no, it. No, we haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah, but I, I think it's... uh it's definitely on the list of things to watch for me, and I think yourself as well, mm-hmm. probably in the near future. Um, but yeah, it's – I know the one that I'm most familiar with because it was like one I saw a couple times in the theater and, you know, once after, once I saw it was on Netflix was uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Just – I know like when I was kind of like curious about like the composition of some of the scenes, I read apparently that a lot of the things were actually just – hand cut out miniature models and they were basically placed in such a way that it would make it look like they were like this massive background or part of a foreground or something. The way that they were placed was essentially that people would stand in a certain way that made it look like they were like standing at the parapet of like some castle type thing. Whereas, you know, in reality the castle was five feet or, you know, three, maybe a foot taller or something Mm -hmm. just in front of the camera. And someone was just like, 600 feet back, you know, just to kind of stand in that way. But the way that everything worked out was that it looked perfect and like, didn't look that weird. So like you get all these like impressive looking set pieces that probably weren't actually impressive set pieces at all, Mm -hmm. but they look visually amazing because they're like really well put together paintings or dioramas essentially that are just kind of worked into reality somehow. And every uh, seemingly every aspect of a Wes Anderson film, and I'm sure going to, uh, boldly suggest probably includes the Royal Tenenbaums and as well. Everything is so well thought out. Yeah. Like every scene feels like it, you know, every aspect of the scene sh- is exactly where it should be. Everyone's sitting in every chair that they need to be. Everything that someone's holding, like even people's like ties and glasses and things like that are, it's almost like their hair's not a hair out of place. Even. Mm-hmm. Like everything very, like it's very meticulously done over with like some kind of a comb over reality or something, if you want to put it that way. It's meticulously done without looking like it's meticulously done. Yeah. And without coming across as pretentious at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's well, maybe up to debate, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's very much like perfect, like to the point where like, at first glance, you might not think about it, but then what, once you're realizing, like, wait a minute, nothing is out of place here. Like, everything that draws attention is being drawn attention to at the right time. And it's like, if you look at something beforehand, like, if you're going back a second time watching, 
it's kind of like even crazier because you're like, wait a minute, that was there the whole time. What? <laughs> so it's like, oh, weird. It, what I've learned and seen in going through some of Wes Anderson's more recent uh, films and whatnot, I dare say he might be one of those directors you put in the pantheon of like, like a Hitchcock. Could be, yeah. Where just such a, a well thought out uh, approach to the visual storytelling on top of the actual storytelling itself, the, the unfolding of the script itself that he has written or co-written with uh, other people. Because the more recent example, we'll, I'll go back to again, the French Dispatch, there's stories upon stories upon stories. There's multiple layers of storytelling in some of the segments of that movie. Yeah, exactly. Which is completely ridiculous. Yeah, like at, at its whole, the, the movie is essentially just a framework to tell a story about storytellers for this fictional uh, magazine. But then one of the stories is the storyteller telling a story about a story that he wrote. So it's very, like, <laughs> it gets incredibly meta- <laughs> to, like the, yeah, but but it's able to sustain itself exactly, and like you're never really lost. Like you know exactly what's happening and like how far into the story you've gotten, because it's like, yeah, like it, they they're making it very clear, and nothing is like to this point where it's like so in the abstract that you have no idea what you're talking about or where where you're supposed to even be. But again, like it's very grounded in reality, and it just feels very much like oh. Okay, I understand, even though it's like <laughs> this crazy meta concept now that like you don't realize is a meta concept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so Wes Anderson movies are an enjoyable experience, I think is what we're saying. And, uh, for us, Wes Anderson is becoming one of those uh, directors where we, I think we're just willing to on its face or on its surface just see any of their new works. Purely on the basis of it being one of their new works. Yeah. Uh, you know, as some people will become diehards of Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez or Spielberg or Ridley Scott. Or, or also these days now for me as well, uh, Del Toro. Yes. Yes. Another great example. Guillermo Del Toro. Diehards where it's just, it's one of their new works. Okay. I have to see it then. Wes Anderson, I think, is one of those directors, uh, writers and directors as well. Yeah. So, The Royal Tenenbaums is 20 years old. We did not do a good job of really selling that as the movie itself. No. <laughs> but, you know, just know that it's it's on our list, both of us, to watch because, you know, of the ones I've seen, like, you know, actually looks like it's his third movie. First one being Bottle Rocket, followed by Rushmore. Okay. Then Royal Tenenbaums. Then The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Darjeeling Limited, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, and French Dispatch. And then an upcoming one called Asteroid City, which is... Interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, I also realize I've I've seen five of them as well. Um, and there's more than five of them, so <laughs> I've got some work to do. Yeah, that's true. So uh, uh, check it out if uh, we've done a good job of selling you on Wes Anderson's efforts. I think we have. I, I'd like to think so, but if not, I mean, fair enough. Everyone's got their own thing. I mean, I could also see how it would be a little bit off-putting for someone. And, like, in a similar way, like, I like Tarantino, but I also know why people might not like Tarantino. Oh, yeah. Very wordy, very unrealistic dialogue, very kind of, like, 
There's a lot of wank. A lot of wank, very full of itself, just like, like very like self-aggrandizing, like, yeah, I know how great I am at all of this, and I'm going to make you sit through all of it. Like, That's one of the differences I find between Tarantino movies and Wes Anderson movies is, yes, Wes Anderson movies might have an element of pretentiousness to them, but they don't feel up their own ass. Yeah, whereas Tarantino is 100% up his own ass when you're watching stuff, because it's like, there's Tarantinoisms that he leans into, knowing that they might be the things that are super polarizing about them. Like, the big, long, un, like, crazy strings of dialogue that no one would ever actually say in reality, he just, like, leans into those scenes sometimes, where it's like, why do you have a whole scene with a bunch of, like, like, hitmen talking about, like, tips, like, tips about, like, you know, gardening or something, in like, like, what are you talking about? Like, not that that's an actual specific no. scene. I was thinking about, like, just the act of tipping in the diner at Reservoir Dogs. Oh, that as well, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, no, just any sort of scene where there's, you know, prolonged dialogue between characters, that's ultimately just, you know, Tarantino wank. Uh, Death Proof. Death Proof, yeah. Specifically the whole scene with all the stunt people in the car, you know, talking about... I don't even remember what they were talking about, but it was just basically, like, rapid fire, like, blah, 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 blah. Well, blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, what, would these people actually be speaking like this? Like, it's not realistic even a little bit. There's the diner scene with the stunt women as well. Yeah. Where it just goes on and on and on. It's really just Tarantino showing, hey, look, I can write dialogue for females too. Yeah. It's like, okay, but can you? Because <laughs> this is going on longer than it should. Yeah. Can you? Yeah. And <laughs> I think I think the criticism that most people would have is like, can you write dialogue? Yeah, I, I think it's a similar thing, you know, that Kevin Smith has as well with his dialogue mm-hmm. as well. That some that puts people off in the same kind of way. Whereas it's just very much like you have to be a fan to like it. Whereas Wes Anderson, it might not be super apparent like why you might dislike something. Like he's got a very specific dialogue style too, but it's not. It's not super pretentious and hard to follow in a Quentin Tarantino way that, you know, Tarantino gets sometimes. Yeah. Which I'll fully admit, even as a fan of Tarantino, like, this is a Tarantino dialogue part. <laughs> you know, where it's like Wes Anderson, it's like, I don't consider it a Wes Anderson dialogue part. Like, it feels very Wes Anderson-y, but it's not, it's not like there's anything specific to him that's, like, happening. It's just, other than, like, maybe, like using Adrian Brody just to have a freak-out scene or something, or, you know, Bill Murray just being unimpressed with something. But those are almost things that, you know, you might see in any other movie anyway. So it's just the way that he harnesses them all in is very, like, yeah. Yeah, through his lens. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, again, 20 years old, and prior to that we spoke about The Legend of Zelda, Twilight Princess on the GameCube, which is 15 years old as of December 11th. Uh, That is... Again, the better version of the Twilight Princess games. The Wii one, eh, if you really want to overdevelop one arm and one shoulder, <laughs> sure, go for that. But otherwise, if you just want a pleasant, enjoyable console gaming experience, get the GameCube version. And that about wraps us up, not just for the Blast from the Past, not just for this particular episode, but for the year in terms of our regular episodes. The calendar year of 2021 is is done. That's it. That's all the gaming news and other crap we've uh, got to talk about. Yep. There's still one more episode in the can that uh, is coming down the pipeline. That is our annual Christmas music special. You have that to look forward to as well. It's uh, it's a good one this year. 
Yeah. I gotta say, I really liked it. Yeah, I think so too. It's a, it's a solid effort that we'll be releasing, uh, in the days ahead as we get closer to Christmas. Uh, keep an eye on your feeds for that. Subscribe if you haven't already to ensure that you get the Christmas episode delivered to your digital doorstep. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Podcasts. So direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the arcade show dot com. com. And if, uh, there's something you'd like to say and, uh, you feel the need to write a, a lot of words, you can email us info at the arcade show dot com or hit us up on social media. Drop us a message on both Twitter, on both uh, Facebook. We are uh, we are at the arcade show on both those big evil platforms. So uh, yeah, until uh, next time when it's our Christmas music special. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>